Hi there. We're in a series called We Believe, Foundations for a Resilient Faith. And what we're doing is going through the eight key doctrines that lie at the heart of Christianity and unpacking them a week at a time. And we've been doing that using the Nicene Creed as our guide. So we're now in week five of eight going through the Nicene Creed. And this week we're going to be in 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. 1 Corinthians and chapter 15, if you've got a Bible and you can turn there. The Nicene Creed is, if you don't know, is a 1,700-year-old document that lays the foundations for all of the key things that Christians everywhere all agree on and have done for 17 centuries. They're the, if you like, the key doctrines that if you take them out, the whole of Christianity collapses. You end up with something totally different. And uh, we've been using the image throughout this series of doctrines that are written in pencil, which you can kind of rub out and replace. Things that are written in ink, which are things you really are committed to, but you know some others disagree. And then things which are written in blood, which are the things you would, you would die for, and effectively the things that make Christianity what it is, and Christianity can't survive without them. And this series, we're looking at the things that are written in blood. And so, for instance, week one, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Week two, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal, eternally begotten Son of God, who is himself fully God and shares the Father's nature and being. Week three, we looked at the doctrine of humanity on the basis of what the creed says about God becoming man like us, becoming a human like we are. And then week four, we looked at the phrase last week, for our sake, he was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. Now, if you stop the creed there, you don't have a gospel. You don't have good news at all if you stop the creed with, he suffered death and was buried. It's actually a tragedy. It's not a gospel at all. We believe in God. We believe he's God-made man. We believe he came down to rescue us, and then he died. Oh, no. That sounds like a disaster. And I remember saying to my son, you know, Zeke, when he was younger, Zeke, Jesus died for you. And him going, oh, no. Because it sounds like bad news, right? It doesn't sound like a gospel at all. But the creed continues, on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. These are the truths on which the world turns. That line makes all the difference in the world between the two different future outcomes the world could have. He rose again. He ascended. He is seated at God's right hand. He will come again. His kingdom is never going to end. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Hallelujah. And those truths, what Jesus did, what he is doing, and what he will do, comes straight out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so we're going to read it now. 1 Corinthians 15 and beginning at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. If the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Notice Paul saying, if you and I have, are not going to be raised from the dead in the future, then all we're doing here right now is pitiful. It's not just wrong, it's pitiful. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of God. You often hear it said that there are two types of people. So sometimes you hear it said that there are two types of people because of this. Or you might hear there are two types of people, like this. Or you might hear that there's two types of people because of this. My favorite one, which I saw recently on a t-shirt of a staff member we had with us, was there are two types of people like this. Take your time. Now, obviously, these are for fun, um, but there is one way of grouping people into two types of people that actually couldn't be more important. Those are trivial ones, but there is one incredibly important, one life-definingly important way of dividing the world. And there are two types of people, those who believe Jesus is still dead and those who believe Jesus is alive. That difference, that way of categorizing people into two groups, is probably the most important kind of division you could ever find. It's the one that tells you all you need to know about people's ways of making decisions, about their life trajectories, about their eternal futures even. Do you think Jesus is dead, or do you think Jesus is alive? That's actually what's going on, often under the surface, in conversations that look like they're about something completely different. 
I remember seeing an, the American pastor Rick Warren on the Piers Morgan show. And Piers Morgan asked him, as they ask all Christians these days, what do you think about gay marriage or some question like that? And Rick Warren's answer was effectively, you and I, Piers, we just make decisions in very different ways. What we regard as being valid or a good argument is based on totally different foundations because I believe Jesus is alive and I believe his word is revealed in the Bible. So that's how I make decisions and you make decisions differently and that's why we disagree on this. I had a friend of mine who I was talking to in Cambridge a couple of years ago and asking him about how it was that he had given up his, his he was a very, very talented surfer and how he'd given that up to become a pastor. And he just said, he said something really struck me. He said, well, I, the thing is, I'm just, because of the resurrection of Jesus and because one day all creation is going to be raised, I'm going to have eternity to surf as much as I want. But I've only got one life now to tell people about the gospel. So I just decided that was a better use of my time and I'll be able to surf a lot when the new creation comes. And those are just two little examples of the dramatic difference it makes if you believe that Jesus is alive. And for Paul in this text... Resurrection is the be-all and end-all. It's the thing on which the world turns. And his argument is basically, if Christ wasn't raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, then we are pitiful. We shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be meeting as a church. We shouldn't be worshipping Jesus because he's still dead. In fact, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The Christian life is pitiful. But if he has been raised from the dead then to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the either or that Paul's framing, that's the whole point of verses 12 to 19, the the middle paragraph of what we've just read, is all about that. If Jesus is alive, brilliant, let's pursue him with all our hearts. If he's dead, let's give up right now. There's no point in being a Christian. That's the whole point of the middle paragraph. So what Paul does in this passage is he starts the section in the first paragraph by reminding us of the essence of, of the Christian gospel, which is that Jesus has risen, right? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Well, some have fallen asleep, which means died. Then he appeared to James, then the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, you need to know if you, you don't know much about this. Actually, probably many of us could do. It would be helpful to know that scholars unanimously date this letter to the AD 50s, the mid-AD 50s, probably AD 53, 54, that kind of time. So we have here an eyewitness of the risen Jesus making reference to literally hundreds of other eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus while most of them are still alive, within 20 to 25 years of the events having happened. That's incredibly significant, a level of history, actually. Just to read a, read a text historically, forget it's in the Bible for a moment, just read it as a historical document. There is witnessing here to dozens and actually hundreds of other people who have witnessed the risen Jesus in bodily form after he was dead. Not only that, but we also know for certain historically that the body of Jesus was found missing from the tomb in which it had been placed. And the reason we know that is because if it wasn't, if the body was still in the tomb in which it had been placed, then the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities who were trying to stop the spread of Christianity would simply have gone to the tomb and produced it and said, you guys, shut up, we've got the dead body here. Look, here he is. And everyone had gone, all right, okay, and gone home. And that didn't happen. So we have very, very strong historical evidence for an empty tomb and very strong historical evidence for multiple appearances to eyewitnesses. 
And the simplest explanation of those two facts is that Jesus did, in fact, bodily rise from the dead on the third day. The only reason we wouldn't come to that conclusion, I suggest, is if we were already committed to the belief that miracles like raising people from the dead are impossible and could never, ever happen. And we're so certain they couldn't happen that even though the evidence indicates that in Jesus' case that's the best answer, we would say, I'm not entertaining it because I know it doesn't happen. But you may, if you were around last year, we would have seen we looked at this in our If God Then What series. The only right way that argument works is if you are already certain there is no God. Because if you, unless you can be certain there's no God, you can't be certain there's no miracles. And therefore, the only real reason you'd have to deny the resurrection, which is miracles are never, ne- never happen, the only reason you'd have to believe that would be we know that there is no God. And you can't be certain of that. As such, you should consider very seriously the resurrection if you're not a Christian this morning. And if you are, you should stand with confidence that this is very well grounded historically. I'll just give you three examples of writers who've written on it, some of the leading New Testament scholars in the world today. This, one, this book, The Resurrection by Geza Vermez, he's not a Christian. But he's fascinating because he studies the resurrection in this book. And he says, well, yeah, the tomb was empty. And yeah, Jesus appeared to these people. And the, the, probably the best explanation of that would be that Jesus is alive, but we know miracles are impossible, so we must have to find another explanation of what's going on. And that's kind of how he finishes the book, which is fascinating. And I would just say to him, no, we don't know that miracles can't happen, because that requires knowing there's no God. You have a different take on it. James Dunn, who's again another leading New Testament scholar, up in, has been up, was up in Durham for many years. And this is just a tiny little book. He makes the argument... Why believe in Jesus' resurrection? He says just as a New Testament scholar in a mainstream university. He's not like in a, a wacky Bible college somewhere. He's a like, professor at Durham for many years. And he's saying, this is just the best explanation of the history we have. And then on a much larger scale, that's exactly the same thing that Tom Wright, who's again research professor at St. Andrews. Like, these are the leading New Testament scholars of their day saying, yeah, historical evidence suggests Jesus rose from the dead. And Paul, of course, is doing the same thing. He's writing as an eyewitness himself, and he wants the Corinthians and you and me to be confident in the historical reality that Jesus of Nazareth was bodily raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. But that's not the end of Paul's argument. Right? So we had three main paragraphs here. With verses 11 to, 12 to 19 in the middle, he's saying this is why it really matters. Verses 1 to 11, this is why I think it happened. But that isn't where he stops, because he goes on in verses 20 to 28 to talk about not just what Christ has done in the past, but what Christ will do because of what he has done in the future. And so it isn't where Paul stops. It actually isn't even where the creed stops, as we'll see in a moment. So let's pick up Paul first at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all of his enemies, including death itself, under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So it's not just for Paul. It's not just that Christ has been raised from the dead. It is that all those who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. And if you don't understand the second of those statements, then the first one isn't as powerful as it sounds. 
So what Paul does, he's trying to say, look, you've got to understand the connection between the resurrection of Jesus then and the resurrection of you who believe in Jesus in the future. And he does that with two images in these verses. Right? So in verses 20 and 23, he uses the image of first fruits, which is he describes Jesus, look, and Christ, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he uses the word again in verse 23. The first fruits is the first part of the crop that gets set aside and given as offering to God. And the first part of the crop is the guarantee that the rest of the crop is coming. Right Now, in our kind of not very agrarian culture in South London, that is not such an obvious analogy. So maybe an easier way of thinking about it is when you see a flash of lightning, you know in a few seconds' time what are you going to hear? Thunder. You know it's a physical necessity. You know that there is no way that lightning can flash and thunder not somewhere be heard. You see the flash and you wait. You know it's coming. And it's kind of exciting sometimes to think, I wonder how long it'll be. And so you wait for the thunder, but it's not waiting with a question mark. It's waiting in the certain hope of the thunder that will come. And Paul's saying, The resurrection of Jesus has pierced the sky. It's lit up the world. And now we're just waiting for the day in which every single person who is in Christ will then in one massive noisy mass be raised from the dead. And we will all come to life together knowing because Jesus has risen, we will rise too. So he's connecting Jesus' resurrection and ours in a very powerful analogy. And that's one of the two ways he explains the connection. And then the other way he explains them is he uses the image of being in Christ as opposed to being in Adam. He says, as in Adam, in verse 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so he's saying, really, you guys die because of who you're in. Not necessarily because of what has happened to you, but because of who you're in. And you come to life in the same way because of who you're in, not because of what you do by your own strength. So... Imagine for a moment that um, I just have a sudden heart attack. It's all very tragic, and as I've had my heart attack, it causes me to collapse to the ground, and I die, and you all feel very sad about it. And you would find that a few minutes after I had died, my toe would be recognized to be dead as well. You'd go to my toe, and rigor mortis would be beginning to set in. My toe would be dead. Right? Now, my toe at this point might feel a little bit aggrieved about that state of affairs and might start saying, this isn't very fair because I, there was, he didn't have a toe attack, he had a heart attack. And the fact that he had a heart attack surely ought to mean that the heart dies, but not the rest of it. There's no, why, what have I done? Why am I dead? And you'd say, oh, silly toe, the reason you have died is not because you had a toe attack or because of who you are in, Sorry, or because of anything that happened to you, but because you are in Andrew. And Andrew is dead, therefore you are dead. Sorry, hard G's. You see, the toe's association with the person that it's in makes all the difference. And Paul is kind of saying, you die, not actually necessarily even because of something that has happened to you, but because you are in Adam. You are inside one who is dead. And therefore the whole human race is afflicted with this thing called death, which means that you are going to die. But, just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So now I want you to imagine that I've been lying here dead on the stage, and then in come the medics, and they bring out those electric pad things, and they put them on my chest. I'm losing him, I'm losing him. Losing him, still go up to 180, whatever it is. And then, and I come back to life again. He's alive! And the whole place breaks out in singing and dancing. 
And then you notice that my toe has come back to life as well. And my toe is doing a jig and dancing and celebrating. And at that point, you could say to the toe, hey, how is it that you are alive? Nobody put the electric pads on you. Nobody brought you back to life. And the toe would say, doesn't matter. I'm in Andrew. And Andrew's come back to life. And as a result, I'm just as alive as he is. It's not because of what I've done. It's because of who I'm in. And Paul is saying, friends, that is the basis on which you and I are certain that we will be raised from the dead. Not only is Jesus the first fruit, the lightning that guarantees our future resurrection, but you know you will be raised because you are in one who has already come back to life and been raised. And because he has, you do not, you get raised because of who you're in and not because of anything you did or anything you can do. And then finally, he says, having brought about the resurrection of the dead, then comes the end in verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So having conquered everything right through to death itself, the victorious Savior will hand the kingdom over to the Father who will reign perfectly over all things forever and ever. Or as the Nicene Creed puts it, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom shall have no end. This is a gospel, friends. This is a good news message. So Paul has communicated to us, if you like, what Jesus has done, risen from the dead, and what he will do, return in glory and hand over the kingdom to the Father. But you may then ask, so that's what he has done, that's what he will do, What's he doing now? And where is he? What's he up to now? Sometimes children ask that, don't they? Where is Jesus? What's he doing? Look at what Paul says in verses 24 to 25. He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the picture is of Jesus, if you like, seated on a throne at the right hand of the Father with his enemies being turned into a footstool. In other words, Jesus does not disappear from the scene between Easter, if you like, the resurrection, and his return as judge. And sometimes you could imagine that he does. You think Jesus rose from the dead, disappeared into thin air, we don't really, he doesn't do anything now, and then in, a, in, in millions of years or thousands of years he will return as judge, and in between he's not doing anything. No, what happens is, according to the gospel, is he ascends, after Easter, he ascends into heaven and he reigns at the right hand of the Father throughout history, destroying every rule and every authority and power until all of his enemies have been finally subdued and turned into a footstool and the last enemy to be destroyed is death, at which he returns and restores life to all of creation, raises the dead and rules in triumph forever on a resurrected earth. Now, in our kind of church... We probably don't think that much about the ascension. Probably. We probably think a lot about the resurrection, which is wonderful, and maybe about the return of Jesus, which is also wonderful. But the ascension can get lost a bit. But there would be absolutely no Christianity without it. When you think about that, there would be no Christianity without the ascension of Christ to rule and reign over the earth until all of his enemies are under his feet. We tend to imagine, I suspect many of us, like the relationship between the resurrection or the, the, cru- the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, we tend to think of as like the, the relationship between a running a race and then running a victory lap. 
right? The real work is done, in the, done over Easter weekend. And the Ascension's a nice sort of triumph parade at the end. But to be honest, the race is over. Everyone's got their medals. Everyone knows who won. And that's not really the gist of it. But I think we'd be better off thinking about it, if I may put it this way, as the relationship between building a house and living in it. The relationship between getting something ready, doing the hard, heavy lifting that's needed to then be able to go on and enjoy the fruit of your labor. The reason you go through the trouble if you do, and I never would, I'm not at all handy. But if you are, the reason why you go through the trouble of building a house or an extension or redeveloping something is not so that you can go, isn't that an amazing piece of work? Now I'm going to go and do something else. It's so that you can have the joy of living in it. It's so that you you go through the trouble so that you can sit down in glory in your new world and wait for it to be put under your feet and crack open a beer and enjoy the fact that you've achieved it. Jesus is seated now in glory. He's ruling over his enemies. If he wasn't, there would be no real Christianity. If Jesus had just absconded, never to be seen again, that would not be good news. But Jesus, having risen from the dead, ascends to the right hand of the Father. He rules and reigns while all of his enemies are being put under his feet. He pours out his spirit over us, as we'll see more about in a week's time. And he is always, the word of God says, living to intercede or to pray for us. So if your kid asks you, what's Jesus doing? Now, where is he now? He is ascended at the right hand of the Father ruling and reigning, gathering up his enemies until they are all destroyed and put under his feet, and praying for his people that they may persevere and grow in the knowledge of God. I quoted a couple of weeks back from the Heidelberg Catechism, this, the 16th century German Q&A uh, that they used to teach people Christian doctrine. This is another wonderful example of what, that, what the Catechism says. They the answer to the question, why the next words and is seated at the right hand of God. Why is that in the creed? Answer, because Christ ascended to heaven to show there that he is head of his church, the one through whom the Father rules all things. Next question, how does this glory of Christ our head benefit us? Answer, first, through his Holy Spirit, he pours out gifts from heaven upon his members. Second, by his power, he defends us and keeps us safe from our enemies. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is risen, he is ascended, and he is coming back. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus is alive and not dead. We thank you so much that Jesus is ascended and not descended or absconded. And we thank you so much that Jesus is coming back to make everything right, to raise all the dead, to judge the living and the dead, and to bring into being an eternal kingdom that we will be able to enjoy with him forever. Lord, this is the, these sentences are the things on which our lives are built, and we are so grateful that they are true. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.